Hey, this is George. Just talking to you one second before we start the show. I wanted to say there's an interesting project on Kickstarter where um, this uh, company is making a trading card game where in order to cast the spells, you have to memorize certain phrases that it will be in a conlang. Now, there's not a whole lot of the uh, conlang shown in their video, but they are looking for a conlanger to, you know, uh, mess with their stuff and turn it into a proper conlang. So, that might be exciting. Anyway, I will link to the uh, Kickstarter page, and uh, by the time you get this net, this, they may be already funded, but, you know... With these Kickstarter things, they can always use extra funding. So, I'm gonna say, check it out. I'll probably mention this on a future episode, but I wanted to get it out there now since it's, since Kickstarter is kinda time sensitive. Alright, and now for episode 46. Willkommen zu Conlangery, dem Podcast über Kunstsprachen und ihre Erfinder. Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. I'm joined over in Wisconsin by William Annis. Hello. And in New Jersey by one uh, Mike Lentine. Hello. Uh, the anime nerd. <laughs> <laughs> this is my first time. I don't know if it's, it's not, it's not a new habit yet. <laughs> so Yet. we were talking about before the show. Mike, actually, we're recording this a little bit late, uh, a, a, cu- a couple hours later than usual, because Mike ended up going to an anime convention. So how did that go, Mike? It went. It was. It was fun. It was um, a small anime convention, only about an hour away, and uh, it was. It was a lot of fun. There were a lot of people in in costumes, and um, they did a human chess. Um, game exhibit thing which was interesting um there were a lot of good a lot of nice art uh artwork there and a lot of people put a lot of time into their costumes and their performances and what have you um and it was a lot of fun i, I look forward to going to um, another one and uh you know maybe going to a bigger one where i could see more and spend a little more time there uh today we got a little bit rained out so um but it was fun it was a good experience okay that's cool <sighs> William, what did you do this weekend? Oh, you know, I'm allowing myself to be deceived by the weather and put plants into pots and did yard work. Very exciting stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm also, yeah, I, I'm also getting really cranky about um, Dan Everett's new book because there are a lot of really terrible articles in the media <laughs> who don't understand the point he's making. Mm-hmm. Um, which is making me crabby. Mm. This, in, this is in particular, expected, the, the, the Sapir Wharf stuff just mm-hmm. sends me through the roof because he's saying exactly the opposite. Oh. Which is that culture determines language, not the other way. Mm. Oh. But I'll get over it. Yeah. Mm. That's fine. There's, there's stuff, there's all kinds of stuff involved. It's kind of like, uh, 
that one psychological experiment where they had people uh, shock somebody to uh-huh. teach them. And yes. everybody cites that as an example of people being suggestible by authority. But actually, when you look at what the all the various experiments they run, it's actually the opposite conclusion. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, what it is is an example of a – it's a study you can't do anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That's true. You can't really do that because of the uh, ethical concerns around it. But – yeah, yeah. Let's just shock a bunch of people. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> oh, I thought. Well, they didn't actually shock people, though. Right, right, right. It was actors, but I think there was a Radio Lab episode. I'll, I'll see if I can track that down. That explained actually all the experiments they did and how that how what people think it means is not actually what it actually meant. But anyway, that's not language related. It's so. Not. Let's talk about something to do with conlanging. And we have a somewhat different topic, uh, style of topic than what we've done recently. This is, um, less of a hardcore linguistics topic and though it involves a little bit and more of an artistic, a question of artistic, uh, style and stuff. We're talking about conlanging for con worlds and how different aspects of your con world um, affect how uh, affect language. So how different aspects of culture and history and uh, even geography can affect language or development of languages, multiple languages. And uh, William, you, you said you were going to focus mostly on like historical and geographical issues, yep. right? Yeah, I'm thinking about this. I mean, there's so many things that inventing a world involve that we've already touched on. Social things, mm-hmm. cultural things, politeness, family structure, all of that. So I want to really focus on um, basic things like geography and sort of in general, how historical linguistics can work in the large. Mm-hmm. So rather than the history of a particular small language, how do they work across large chunks of space? That's really was my focus in thinking about this because I do not do conworlding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm probably the most uh, conworlder of all of us, but I have not done, I have yet to really hunker down and really do multiple languages for a single con world. I have done several different sketches in my um, sci-fi sort of multiverse world, mm-hmm. but mostly I've I've uh, developed Yeltach and had some work on some dialects, and the others are barely just like beginning sketches. Oh, okay. So, where do we want to start with this then? William, you got a bunch of notes. Sure, we can just sort of riff on these, start from these, and go from there. Dive um, so, I guess the first question is, where are your mountain ranges? And that's sort mm-hmm. of proxy for, where are your major geographic barriers? Mm-hmm. What sorts of things are going to separate one group of people from another group of people? which will allow their languages to become different over time. So 
not just mountain ranges, but mountain ranges, large rivers, just oceans, all, all, lakes, all sorts of swamps, you know, all sorts of things yeah, that might keep people of, from interacting. Mm-hmm. Basically, natural borders. Where yeah. would you draw natural borders in your world? Right. Um, and, you know, how advanced is your society? How easy is it to get across a mountain range? Do they normally get across a mountain range? Um, mm-hmm. so all that sort of stuff. So the, the thing that interests me in terms of making a realistic language is we're going to start with substrate effects. Most of the time, unless you're deep into the mists of prehistory, if you have a group of people move someplace else, there may already be people there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they might either object to and eject the people coming in. They might be overwhelmed by the people coming in, or they might all get along and the cultures might merge. But let's start from the assumption that a new group of people come in. They have, for whatever reason, if superior numbers or technology, they win. Their language wins uh-huh. over. But there's going to be lots of local vocabulary that's going to be absorbed into the intruding language. Um, things like words for plants that only occur locally. Uh-huh. Um, words for technology for relating to those plants that only occur locally. Uh-huh. Um, place names are a really big, big one. Uh-huh. So, for example, sometimes it doesn't have to be like those things are certain to happen. But I think it doesn't really have to be local stuff because um, I know that Spanish has has some of the only things we know about pre-Celtic Iberian languages are loan words that are in Spanish, which include like perro, dog. So it doesn't have to be local, but. Probably the local stuff is more likely to be to get uh, borrowed, mm-hmm. right? So, for example, in ancient Greek, there are a bunch of substrate. There's a large substrate vocabulary. In fact, um, pretty much any word ending in inthos is assumes to be from the substrate language. That includes place names like Corinth. And bef- before the show, Mike and I were talking. Apparently, labyrinth is one of these, huh. or things like hyacinth. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think? You think labyrinth is? Yes. Okay. Um, I live in Wisconsin, where we have city names like Milwaukee and Economawak. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So and, there's that, and we've we've borrowed a bunch of Native American terms for local f- flora and fauna, like raccoons and such, and muskrats and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. Skunk. So. That's a good example. That's, and, and that's really, not specifically Wisconsin, but I'm... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sort of it, it happens all over America. Any place, local foods and animals, the, the names may be adopted. So mm-hmm. that's useful to think about. You know, I've got my con world, my people are here, my language is here, but who is there before them, if anyone? And what words might they, and what was their local physical culture? So a lot of the words in the Greek world relating to sailing and grape cultivation are also from the substrate languages. Hmm. Ah, okay. Interesting. Right? The, 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 the people who invaded Greece, who are we now call the Greeks, who spoke Greek, came from a landlocked place. Oh, uh, yes. No. They came uh-huh. from, ultimately from Indus River Valley. But No. no. I, hmm? I got a question. Sure. Um, of what? course. I'm gone. Hmm? Um, I was going to say, what as far as a language... Um, 
assimilating or basically just um, adding pieces of the other languages to it is what determines how much of that language, how much of the existing languages are incorporated. Like, for example, English, I know, took um, a lot of things from Latin and then has certain words that came from the Germanic people and then has certain words from French and then has certain words. And English is just a crazy Katamari ball of languages. Um, right. Yeah. And that- But then um, my, I was going to say from that, the, when the Roman Empire was around, did they just sort of squash all those or did it still accumulate some of that? Or what's the situation? Yeah, English is a great big mess. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you had some pre-Indo-European peoples, and then the Celts came in, and then the Romans came in and they left some vocabulary and technology words, but then they got kicked out. <laughs> and then Germanic tribes came in and took over and mm-hmm. pretty much pushed the Celts north and west, so Wales and Ireland and Scotland, effectively. Well, Scotland, actually, <laughs> or, or Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, the Celtic language spoken in Scotland is actually a remigration from Ireland back to Scotland. Is that um, Manx? Or? Really? Yeah. I didn't not know Manx. that. Um, yeah. Scottish Gaelic starts, it, it goes back to Ireland or goes mm-hmm. through Ireland. Um, I, and then I the bet French, I bet, I bet if you tell a Scot that, that'll, they'll get mad. I don't know. They might know. <laughs> they might know. It's not I a secret. Know. They might know. They might know. Um, <laughs> and, and might not care. Um, and then, Norwegian Vikings speaking French invaded. <laughs> um, okay. and they became the English <laughs> or the Ta-da. modern English. Right. So English is a god awful mess. I, you, I suppose if you were a really busy conlanger, you could do something like that, but I can't think about that. Each new way. It's all a question. It's all a question of history. You, you see this in other places where you've had multiple invasions. I know. That Spain has sort of a similar issue is that there were pre-Celtic peoples and then the Celts came and then the Romans came and then they stayed. But also the Arabs took over for a little bit and there's a bunch of Arabic loan words. So actually it's, it was, it was North African speaking Arabic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. North African speaking Arabic. That's true. <laughs> yeah. But so it's this happens in uh, and it probably happens in places other than Europe but uh that's the uh, the example that I'm familiar with so what i was getting to and i think we were coming around to this is that if it's a hostile takeover are you more likely or less likely to see a uh, uh, maybe an even blending of the two languages or is it more like when someone takes over host- in a hostile manner perhaps they either outlaw the speaking of the native language or they strive to perhaps eradicate it by means of killing people you know you can't tell you don't know the the joke about china is everyone who invades becomes chinese within a few generations <laughs> okay like china has this you know well-established deep history a complicated political culture mm-hmm. and the mongols invaded and then they forgot mongolian and became chinese and the manchus invaded and then they forgot manchu and became- <laughs> <laughs> right. So to the point that Manch the, the Manchu language is uh nearly extinct anyway. Nearly extinct. Right. And it's actually one of my yes. examples for something that we can talk about later. So mm-hmm. there's that, but mm-hmm. then you have a situation like Australia or all of the Americas where people come, they bring horrible diseases, vast yeah. amounts of people die off, oh. and then they take over politically. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you don't need to, in that situation, make a concerted effort to destroy language. It will happen on its own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It'll just wither sadness and tears. Yeah, yeah. sadly, it, it will, given enough time. Mm-hmm. So 
I However, think... um, there were concerted efforts to to destroy Native American languages too. So, uh, and some of them that survived for a long time ended up being seriously hurt by uh, some of the uh, the English schools and such. Yeah, yeah, the, the English schools where they took the kids away and far away from their parents and had them only speak. Yeah, yeah, right. And I think that was simply an attempt to make them assimilate. That was not a deliberate language policy, I don't think, as mm-hmm. much. I mean, that was part of it, but not the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have situations like France, oh. which we think of as one country now, it used to be lots mm-hmm. of little countries, and during the 12 and 1300s, we had the Catholic Church and the Northern French kings got together to take over the south of France so that they would, first of all, get rid of the horrible heretics and to take over a lot of land, mm-hmm. uh-huh. which over time has effectively killed Provençal and, and the minority languages there, even though they still exist. Mm-hmm. Barely. Mm-hmm. So I don't think... And then we contrast this to the Chinese situation. So I think that if you're conworlding, you could go either way. You could have invaders yeah. come in in and promulgate mm-hmm. a language not their own. For example, the language of the Incan Empire was Quechua, not because the Incans spoke Quechua, but because it already existed as a useful lingua franca. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So any and political the Spanish situation- actually the uh, Spanish actually maintained it for a little bit. And they maintained Nahuatl for a little bit as well. For the before, same reasons, exactly. Yeah. Before they, they eventually got to the point where they could, they could just promote just Spanish. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Use, if it's useful to promote another language, then you're going to do that. And various empires in the Tigris Euphrates area were happy to use, you know, Aramaic as mm-hmm. a lingua franca, regardless of what they spoke. And in the same way, Persian was used by the, the Mongols. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Mongol empires. It's there. Use it. So any history you can imagine can be justified with actual real life human experience. I think an important thing here is when you are building all your languages, don't just consider the point of history that you're focusing on, but consider the whole historical timeline up to that point. Because all those interactions end up building into what the situation now ends up being. Right. It's simply a matter of how much time and brain power you have to determine how deep you want to go. <laughs> that's true. You don't, I'm, I mean, that sounds like it's a lot of work. You, 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 you can sort of prioritize and, and think about how much you want to think about all of that stuff. But I think, in general, you want to think about what has occurred over your timeline, especially if you're doing this this historically. Then you want to think about the different influences. But, you know, it it does depend on how much work you want to put into it to make it perfect. Sure. Huh. And, and I'm really just focusing on things to think about if you're going to go that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. So here's the the next thing that's sort of interesting and maybe a little counterintuitive. How long have the people who migrated into your area been there? Mm-hmm. If they had been there a very, very long time, you expect greater language diversity. Between whom? Between all of those people that originally were speaking the same language, you expect a great diversity of mutually incomprehensible languages descended from that. 
Now, does that re- require that they have been separated? Because look for if if uh, all of Asia could speak with the internet from the very very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Might... Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm ass- I'm assuming that they're not communicating with people thousands of miles away easily. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, the Sinitic languages in China, what we would call Chinese, cover a vast area and are, by historical standards, quite undifferentiated. They're all obviously related to each other. Mm-hmm. Versus... They're very, they're very similar. They're very similar. Versus all of the languages of Australia, say, who are hugely diverse, or the, you know, dozen to two dozen distinct Austronesian language families just on Taiwan. Hmm. <laughs> um, and a then, lot of this, right? All of those Austronesian languages, mutually incomprehensible, vast amounts of compl- uh, diversity versus Polynesian, which is quite homogenous. Now here's, a, I'm, I know I'm just full of questions, but um, does, if your language, if the people in an area say are literate, does that affect how, how much blending there is between languages? Will there be more or less because they can, see and be exposed to each other more or if they're less literate or if they don't have a written form, is it more or less likely to see that kind of blending? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I think some people Mm -hmm. will very strongly assert that writing has no effect on spoken or very minimal effect on long-term historical changes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I buy Mm -hmm. that. I think if you're con worlding, you could make an argument either way. Yeah. I mean, it's your it's your baby. You can do what you want. It's your baby. Yeah, you you have well, you're justified in either decision. I think writing may not have much of an impact on long term linguistic change, but you will have a written register that will be somewhat more conservative than spoken. Right. So, right. I was just thinking. Well, maybe what made me think of that is I it's I don't know much about the Native American the Native American languages, but it seems like they're very different from one another. Um, and I don't know if that's because I don't know if they really had a writing system, um, as opposed to say, uh, well, I guess the languages of Europe where a lot of them maybe came from the Roman empire and they just broke off from the same thing. I don't know if the same kind of dynamic occurred in the, in the Americas as it was over there. And if that was driven by literacy or not. No, probably not. Europe once had the language diversity that America had. Mm. Mm-hmm. Successive um, waves of invaders fixed that. <laughs> fixed. Air quotes. It's hard yeah. to say if um, if literacy is the big thing, but um, I would say that. Okay, I was, I'm yeah, George is not going to say anything. <laughs> um, no, okay, okay, you are right in that North America, excluding Mexico and all of South America, there were no writing systems. In pre-colonial times. Hmm. But I think it has more to do with um, the more isolated communities can be, the more diverse the linguistic situation will be. And as much as people did uh, sort of travel around through the river systems of the Americas, I think that individual tribes were somewhat sort of insulated from each other in that they didn't have... Uh, they didn't have like sailing technology. They couldn't go really far distances. At least not everyone went really long distances. So, mm-hmm. um, so a, a good, and they're, go ahead. No, go. 
As you say, so a good example of this is the Nadanet languages or the Athabascan languages, which is somewhat restricted. Uh-huh. The homeland of these languages is in northwestern Canada and Alaska. Tremendous diversity of languages, mutually incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you count something like Haida, then really far distant or, and, and Tlingit and all of these. For some reason, around a thousand years ago, these people started moving south. So you have a few closely related, um, Athabascan languages in California and Oregon. And then in the American Southwest, you have large spaces covered by speakers of Navajo and Apache and a few other southern Athabascan languages, which are obviously closely related. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So again, lots of diversity up at the top where people have been living for a long time and they don't need to go very far because they're accustomed to living in the environment. Mm-hmm. They're thriving. Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reasons, they move south. Um, a small population then results in very similar languages spreading over a large area. Almost like a linguistic founder effect. Exactly. Exactly. Now, um, speaking of um, similarities in the languages and perhaps, um, you know, one coming from the other, um, this, I had a, an, a, just a thought that was coming from that, but a little bit on, uh, a little bit different. But um, as far as sound distribution goes, like I noticed that when uh, I think George just mentioned some language that had the k sound in it, the um, like Nawak, that k, t, yeah. the TL, um, it seems like a lot of languages of North America have that, but I haven't heard that sound a great many other places. Um, or another example is that the languages of Africa seem to have a lot more click-related sounds than perhaps languages elsewhere. Well, is there a, is there a geographic distribution of sounds in non-related languages? Yes, we were just um, getting onto aerial effects. Hooray! A perfect transition. Uh, actually, talking about the clicks, so the clicks seem to have originated in just one particular language family in Africa, isn't it, William? Yes. Um, the, the Kosian or Khoisan? Khoisan? Uh, well, Khoisan, uh, I think, is one of that family. I, no, I'm not it's sure. not, I'm actually. To... It's not, actually. Is That's it the not? funny thing. Is it Bantu? It's, <laughs> it's, it's Bantu. <laughs> oh, and that's the thing. Bantu is a larger language family that spreads over all of South, almost all of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, yeah, and a few of those Bantu languages that have been cl- in close contact with the click languages have developed clicks as an area effect. Right. But so, they they are the it because it's such a rare sound. It basically only occurs in a couple different places in Africa. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. Um, yeah. So an, but, an anyway. aerial an aerial mm-hmm. effect is the tendency of languages that live next to each other for a long time to start borrowing things from each other. Mm -hmm. So Um, particular kinds of sounds mm -hmm. is an obvious one. Mm -hmm. Um, Idioms, even if people aren't traveling a lot, they might be talking with their neighbors, even if they're speaking different languages. So idioms might travel. Culture might cause idioms to travel. So for example, most of the America's West pretty much, West of the Mississippi have coyote tales. Like mm-hmm. the tale of a coyote or a story? Like stories about the okay. coyote. Um, <laughs> stories about he, coyote, yeah. And coyote. And he played, he's always a trickster, but he plays sort of different roles and he, you know, he's viewed differently in different cultures. But, you know, 
huge area that he covers. Mm-hmm. And even surprisingly low-level grammar features can be borrowed in time. Mm-hmm. So Navajo, after centuries of living next to tense-obsessed languages, Spanish and English, is appears to be in the process of creating a past tense for itself. Are there many Navajo speakers? Um, about a hundred thousand. Okay. It's the healthiest of all of the languages of native languages of America, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, the United States. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about that lateral sla and tla sound. Mm. Yes. Any language that passes through the Pacific Northwest is likely to acquire that sound. Mm -hmm. Um, So where is Nahuatl from? No, that's from Me- South Mexico, the Valley of Mexico. And what's the population? So yeah, they came from further north. They did. They, they came, came from, from probably, North America. Probably Arizona, Texas area. Yeah, maybe and uh, yeah, so they probably were in a group that passed through there, and then they traveled. They set up shop in Mexico. What in like the 1300s? Uh, that sounds about right. Yeah. They were in yeah. other parts of Mexico for a few centuries before that. Yeah, but that's when they, they set up the Aztec Empire and everything. And they sort of, yeah, they sort of burst onto the scene. So, what was I going to say? Well, I think we were talking about aerial effects and um, how they borrow from each other. Now, get, kind of getting to um, the more conlangy side of this, um, if you have a language that has, say, it's all across the whole continent, but the language on the east side is very vastly different from the west side. Where do you consider it to be two different languages? Because I think a language is just a dialect with an army I've heard before. Yeah, you know, I always avoid that question. I just don't care. I just yeah. don't give a damn what the difference between a language and a dialect is. Mm-hmm. That, well, is, that, that mm-hmm. is something that can be interesting to deal with. This doesn't necessarily affect your conlang so much as it affects other... as part something in your conlang can affect the world. So there is a technical test for it. Yeah, I mean mutual intelligibility and Yeah, the mutual intelligibility test. But because so many political complications occur and you have things like dialect continuums and stuff, yeah, mm-hmm. it ends up being a political question. Which brings to mind something that I put in my notes is how do so this is more a question of what how what the language is positioned in the con world is than how the con world affects the language. How do people in your world perceive this language? So do they think of the language as a dialect or another language? Does Absolutely. it have any sort of prestige value or is it marginalized? It's there's some questions you can, you need to answer in your con world about that part. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So how it's viewed, uh, lots of people, lots and lots of people care very deeply about whether or not Cantonese and Chinese are dialects or languages. I mm. don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you can decide in your con world how that goes. So um, there's a really great example for aerial effects, and then we can move on from this, that I, I like. Sure. Um, there is in California two languages that are in the Algic family. That is, they are related to the Algonquin languages of um well, the vast field of North and Eastern America that the Algonquin languages have existed in. Hmm. Um, there's Algonquin, Algonquin languages in California? Yes, there are two of them. They came for the salmon, that's, is what I like to say. <laughs> that, that's just, like, surprising. 
Right. Well, they're not Algonquin. They're they're part of a family that's hired that's called Algic, because obviously they left a oh, while okay. ago. But so. compared to the Algonquin languages, the Algic languages have glottalized, that is, ejective stops, which mm, their mm-hmm. eastern neighbors do not have. They have glottalized resonance, which is very much a California thing. Glottalized resonance? Resonance, yes. Like, uh, is that creaky? Oh. Uh, yeah, it's sort of, it sounds like a creaky articulation of M and WI, those sorts of things. Mm. There's a, a glottal release. Um, and it has, ta-da, the lateral fricative. Ooh. <laughs> so, right, just, just by living in California next to all of those friends, um, the Yurok language acquired these additional features that are typical of language in the area. Weot, which is another language from the area, did not borrow all of these. It did get the, the alveolar, but it decided to pass on the ejectives. Hmm. No, thanks. Mm-hmm. No ejectives for me. I'm watching my figure. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, now, now I remember that you, you, you mentioned this in a previous episode sometime. Right. So the, the whole point of this is, if you're going to do your Conroe, you've got different language families that are bumping up against each other, or you have people moving into other areas, they mm-hmm. might start, they will, I'm not, they're not might going to, they will start to accumulate features and share features with the language they're next to. Yeah. And this is, this is another thing where depending on what work you've done on your con world, you can sort of uh, figure out how the language does. If you've done things like migration maps mm-hmm. in your con world, then you probably want to take those into account when you're figuring out the historical linguistics and sure. see when these people got here and how long they've been there. I've right. thought of things like that before. I thought of using, like, if I liked, if I couldn't decide between two different, um, two different ways of doing something. I thought about maybe doing, using them as two different, um, languages and, Having thinking about how like one started in one place and then it moved, so it kept these things, but then it got this other aspect, and it was uh, it was kind of interesting in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting way to justify radical changes to a language, a particular language of a language family. Mm-hmm. If you're going to mm-hmm. go that route, right? If you want to add ejective consonants to Elvish, mm-hmm. imagine <laughs> some of Tolkien's elves got stuck in Seattle. Oh, my. Before white people got there, <laughs> they came across the gray. They came across the to the gray havens, and they found what salmon. What? There's delicious what? salmon here. We're going to stay. There's salmon. Yes. What, what is what is what 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 would be the Arda equivalent of uh, America? I have no idea. Now, I was going to ask a question about Elvish. Um, did are there these kinds of um, aerial effects between Quenya and Sindarin? Well, they're related languages already, so I don't. Know. Yeah, but I mean, like it, it was there. I know that, um, I think, um, in terms of the grammar, I think, um, it seems like Quenya is a lot more, uh, has a lot longer words and it's a lot more inflected and Sindarin seems a little bit more lax. I wasn't sure if that was a, a drifting based on what they were maybe next to. I know Tolkien was a, did a lot of work on them. Well, Tolkien, the thing is with Tolkien is he focused mainly on the, uh, the Elvish Family, what is it? I don't know if he named the family formally, but... Uh, was it Noldoran or something like that? Or that was old? Uh, I don't know. But Ugh. he only did a little bit of work on things like Valar and uh, the uh, the Westerness and uh, Dwarven. He mostly focused on the Elvish languages, so I don't know if he really did enough of other languages to really 
be able to put in substrate effects and aerial effects and such. Yeah, he was he really was... more just straight up historical changes. Mm. Yeah. Was and, there and anyone we talking have... there before the elves arrived? You know sure. what? I think the elves were the first. Yeah. Like even like the ants are older, but the elves taught the ants how to talk. Right. Mm. So. And then where did the dwarfs speak come from? Was that just a, I'm so, I presume maybe they were there at the same time, but a different area, like under the mountains. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know where the, about what the origin too. of the dwarves are. We, I'd have to learn more about uh, Tolkien's world to know about that. All I know is the dwarves have like a secret language, so not much of it's is figured figures in the books. Ooh, speaking of multiple languages on and in one location, I think I've heard of an area and I forget much more about it. But that where they have multiple languages, but one language is used for when you're speaking about very sacred things and very um, holy or very revered topics. And the other language is used for just day-to-day things. Do you, have you guys heard of something like that? Mm, that happens, not that per se. Um, I thought that yeah, I heard about that somewhere. It's not like... Um, there are times... There are, in lots of different cultures, languages that get associated with um, certain religions and become what they call liturgical languages. Like now so is Sanskrit with the Catholic Church. Latin is used for right. some of the masses. Right. Latin with the yeah, Latin in the Catholic Church. There's Sanskrit in a lot of uh Buddhist um areas. Um, I think Pali there was... is more common Pali is more common for the Buddhists, but yeah. Okay. Um what was the one language that's like semi constructed that Zoroastrians or something somebody used? Oh, oh, well, there's two varieties of that. They're not really semi-constructed. One is a great deal like Sanskrit, and then one is just Old Persian, effectively. Oh, okay. So Avestan and... Darn it, I can't remember their... Old, I think it's just like Old Iranian. Pahlavi? Middle Persian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Avestan and Pahlavi. Pahlavi, that is. Yeah, Pahlavi, okay. Well, um, but in, in any case, you can have a language become associated with religion in such a way that it becomes like even long after the language is dead, the priests still end up using it in the case of sure. Latin. Latin or um, Sumerian. Or Sumerian or, or like some of these. Or like in Harry Potter, Alohomora means open the door. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. It's a spell. It means Alohomora is the open the door, unlock something spell. Okay. Anyway, except where where does it come from? Like Arabic oh, or something? No, I think I she know. took. Um, I think she got that. Like she took some of the incantations from like it's uh, Latin, like uh, the Killing Curse, um, Avada Kedavra. I think came from Abracadabra or something about cadavers. But she took a lot of different eclectic things. It's not real Latin. I think she though, kind just... of she kind of played with words a little bit and kind of made 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 up some some yeah. of those. But uh, yeah. But yes. I don't know. Magical languages gets into a whole other thing of if you use magic in your con world and what, what you do. That could be a whole other topic that I don't know if this group wants to talk about. <laughs> Obviously, I've created one. Yeah, I was but, um, I mean, it's, I don't know. But real languages can get pulled for that too. So hmm. for the ancient, um, Mediterranean world, the Greeks regarded, and if everything's the Egyptians did as spooky. So ancient mm-hmm. Greek magic has lots of gibberish that's supposed to sound like Egyptian. Oh. And then for 
the Romans, the Etruscans had a certain spooky reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then <laughs> as, as their culture became so deeply intertwined with Greek culture, then the Greek habits of magic also moved into, um, the, every place the Romans went. Hmm. That's um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to talk about sort of migrating peoples mm-hmm. is we've got people who move because the weather's bad. We've got people who move because there are irritating people who moved into their original home. <laughs> um, and in certain political situations, you might get forced migrations. There's no reason for mm-hmm. there to be an Iroquoian language spoken in Wisconsin, but because we had a bunch of Oneida shipped up to Green Bay, we have an Iroquoian language spoken in my state. Hmm. Um, earlier in the show, George mentioned that Manchu's almost dead. The only place it lives is in the middle of Xinjiang, way to the west of their home ground, because an emperor <laughs> told them to go there once. <laughs> well then. <laughs> Where it's called Shiba. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and for reference, man, the Manchus actually come from the northeast of China. Yeah. So that's a long migration. It is a long migration. <laughs> and they invaded China and became Chinese, except for these guys uh, yes. who were shipped off to the desert. As they followed suit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so, um... The Manchu orthography is just, beautiful. I love it. I just wanted to mention a couple other things that you might want to talk about. Um, like we said here, culturally specific items are not necessarily important, although culturally specific items for a substrate language probably will get loaned into the super straight language. Um, what this could be a whole topic on its own, but what kind of literally literary styles have developed? There's a lot of, a lot of idioms come out of literature like in in english there are so many things that we don't even remember come out in, coming out of shakespeare or out of the king james bible that came from those like <laughs> once i saw a movie version of hamlet and on my way out some teenage girl was complaining about how many clichés were in it <laughs> well it's like it's like the stereotypical thing that witches say is double trouble boil and bubble that's from Macbeth. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Like, totally and it was original that. then, but now, like everybody uses it. That's like plagiarism. Uh, no, no, it's just a, a, no, a, a, a cliche. It's mm. culture. It's um yes, and um the same thing happens in in uh well in China. Like almost all of the Chengyu come from some story or some literary text or some some historical essay. That came, okay. you know, a thousand years earlier. For people who don't know, a Chengyu is a typically four-syllable proverb-like phrase. They're used a lot yeah, more than we use proverbs in English. It's 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 like an mm-hmm. idiom, but it's it's usually it might be cl- grammatical and classical, but not grammatical and normal in uh, in current Mandarin. And uh, it's it's usually some sort of abbreviation of a phrase from some ancient source mm-hmm. um and another thing i wanted to mention really quickly was um what is the name of your language and mm-hmm. this is important is it and is it an endonym that is 
Is it a name that these people started calling themselves, or is it an exonym, something that somebody else started calling them, and maybe they adopted, maybe they still call themselves something else? And why is that the case? I think that's sort of involving what the historical context of what other cultures exist can be important. Like, um, and also if you're talking about multiple languages, what do they call the other languages? Because, and uh, the other people, because I believe, um, early on in English history in, um, some people were calling the, the, uh, Anglo-Saxons something based on angles. And some of them were calling them something based on Saxons, hmm. but uh, because of whoever they happen to have more, more contact with. Right. Now, um, one thing I wanted to mention, I don't know if um, I'm jumping in here, but when we were talking about um, loan words coming into the language and how it affect or how it's affected by um, when the borders open up or when they start to be in contact with each other and physical uh, boundaries, um, Japanese, I think, does there's a certain, I'm not sure if it's a per, certain chronological point, but they have a lot of words that seem to have come from like Western things like, like beer and car and jeans and all these things that Japanese just kind of uses cognates more I or believe, less. I believe, I believe a lot of that comes from the post-war period because, yeah. because of the Marshall Plan and the huge U.S. involvement in Japan. Mm-hmm. I think before that, like even like Western sciences, they, they made their own words by coining them from Chinese characters. Mm-hmm. Um, William, does um, Natvi have any sort of loans from English? Or it has a few. It? Okay. Um, it has um, book for book. Okay. It has patsu for badge, like what you wear if you work for the company that was there. Um, uh, yeah, and then for their various flying contraptions. It was Tao Sip, which has the not the word for sky, Tao, mm-hmm. and then ship, which uh. they don't have that sound, so it became Sip. Um, Fromer tries to limit how many of those there are. So how about for things they didn't see, like guns, for example? How did they handle those new concepts? Don't know. We have not dealt with that yet, and Fromer oh. hesitates to answer some questions until he can mm. pester James Cameron. Ah, okay. That's, 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 well, um, that, that is interesting because all of the things that you mentioned, William, are things that the Natvi would not have had before. Right. Um, well, Mike, what were you going to say? I was going to say when I work on mine, I usually think about what kind of culture they came from, of course. And then if there's something in today's world, because I do try to make it so one day I'll be able to use it in a journal or on a website. But if there's something that is somewhat alien to that con, culture or con world, I think about if there's either a way they can make that by using the, what the words they have and coming up with a new word for it internally, so to speak, or if maybe there's a, um, a borrowing or a changing or a uh, conlangization of whatever word that is, and they bring it in from like a cognate. And maybe if they had, if, the, if it was gun, but they don't have initial G's, they might be like, you know, gun if you have pre-initial, but you know, basically adopting it into your conline because it's not a native concept they have and um that happens in nat in natlangs too and comments. Yeah. It's it's really hard to tell what a natlang is gonna do. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. when the Romans learned about the Greeks, they were completely overwhelmed by Greek culture. Mm. And they started borrowing tremendous numbers of Greek words because it's very, very, very easy in Greek to make a new word. 
compounds oh, really? are very simple, hmm. like German oh. compounds flourish. Latin is much, much less happy to do this. Mm-hmm. So Cicero pretty much single-handedly worked hard to produce local Latin vocabulary to describe things mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, there were one or two terms that they completely freaked them out and they came out with really weird um, examples for. So we have a language like Japanese, which is very, very happy to adopt foreign words. English is pretty happy to adopt foreign words. Navajo, on the other hand, is tremendously resistant mm-hmm. and coins its own oh. words for things. Um, doesn't doesn't uh, Navajo like have a word for computer that's like thinking metal uh, or something? Well, the Navi word for computer is 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 metal brain, and Chinese is electric brain. Right, right. I mean, there there are various yeah. ways. Chinese, you can Chinese do- is another one that is uh, very resistant to loan words, but possibly for different reasons than Navajo is. Mm. Um, partly because it's really hard to um, to transliterate foreign phonetic loans into characters. <laughs> Yeah, well, also yeah, because the phonotactics to... don't allow that kind of combination sometimes. Right, right. right. Yeah. I would love to see the idea of transubstantiation in Chinese. But we can talk about that some other time. I'm sure I could look it up. Yeah, yeah. There's just an Catholics example in of, China. So. I mean, religious movements present a really big challenge, um, mm-hmm. as anyone who works at the Summer Institute of Linguistics know, right? They produce all of this magnificent linguistic research because they want to translate the Bible into the local languages, all of them. Yeah. Mm. But now China did did borrow some uh I think Sanskrit words for Buddhist for, from yeah. through Buddhist teachings. Like uh the it sounds absolutely diff- totally different now, but the uh w- the uh Chinese word for meaning Buddha does come from the word Buddha or how however it's pronounced. <laughs> sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite yeah. example, um, in the modern world is Arabic. If you mm-hmm. become mm-hmm. Muslim, then you have to learn Arabic. And so, you know, you might find a you religious person. You have to take person. an Arabic name too, right? Uh, no, that's not a requirement. Hmm. It's not a requirement. Uh, no, a lot no, no, of people no, no, do no. it, apparently. Yeah, American, Americans do, um, <laughs> as sort of an, as sort of an identity thing rather than a religious requirement. Um, the point is, some of that language may be translated, but for the most part in Islam, I think they stick with the, the Arabic terms. Mm. Um, mm. And sometimes, frankly, that might be easier in Christian missionary work just to stick to um, an English translation. Navajo Christians say, um, ooh, I forgot the word. <sighs> uh, uh, they combine two words, one of which is English God. Oh, okay. Um, they use the problem is is that the native spiritual vocabulary um, sounds too it reminds them too much of the previous non-Christian religion. I can't find the word. Um, is it the Navajo word for God? No, it means the holy people. Because they say that the word. Um, well, the question on here says, "What is the Navajo word for God?" And it says, "Begohiti or Begochiti." It, through, through, though in the Navajo, Navajo Bible, it is God barred from English. So I don't know if that's the one you're looking at. Right. Uh, no, I'm, I'm thinking I'm sure of I mangled that. a particular... And anyway, we don't need to get into this. The point is, borrowing between languages, you never know what's going to happen. Some languages like it, some languages hate it, some will do a mix. 
Mm-hmm. And some will do like English and borrow it, but still perverse it where the, someone of the language it came from might be like, what's that mean? It's right. French. No, can it's I, not. Can I mention something really quick? What's the foyer? This, this, <laughs> this has absolutely nothing to do with anything, but I remember. So Chinese used to have one word for the third person pronoun ta, one character for it. Ta. I mean, mm-hmm. which it, which is just a, a, um, it's a, a man radical with some phonetic. When they came across, uh, I think it's when they came across European languages, they tried to imitate it and made a feminine version and a neuter version. Uh, the feminine version just has the, the female radical. I have seen also in a Chinese Christian church, there is also one that they developed to refer to God or Jesus that uses the ritual radical. Huh. So oh. you could have some really crazy stuff happen. I've heard that Chinese God is formal, like the idea for a formalized you was from that kind of exposure also. I don't know if that's the case or not, because I know in... Uh, um, like, I don't know, because and... Nin actually comes from a contraction of Niman. Yeah, but that's kind um, of like the, the royal we and the royal you, maybe. I don't know if that's related or not. I don't know. They they did actually also have one and tan, which were formed similarly. Mm. Um, I remember looking this up. Yeah, but this is funny. But that this anyway, is just, uh, this is just writing stuff. Mm. Yeah, this is purely writing. This has nothing to do with because ta. I always I always argue that it's all one word because Chinese in speaking English constantly confused he and she, and there's a ph- possibly a phonetic reason for that too. But, uh, mm-hmm. I think that they can consi- they think of it subconsciously as one word, but they write yeah. it differently and they are pretty good at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but, uh, getting, I think we've wandered a little bit from the Conline Con world thing, but, um, that's okay. Wandering's fun. But speaking of one yeah. thing I have jotted down here, um, I don't know if the idea of how quickly you can move, I think we mentioned this earlier, how quickly you can travel or what kind of pace their life is at. But if you think about your con culture and maybe in terms of just how how the people are or how their reality is, that might help inform how you d- maybe break up time or how if they think you know it's a short time or if there's a different word for in five minutes from now or if there's a different word for um, if if they're really rural people or they're really sl- laid back and you know if somebody gets back to you in five days that's like wow you're so quick then maybe there'll be there's I don't know if this is actually the case but. Maybe that would reflect in the language where, you know, you wouldn't have, um, maybe so much of breaking up hmm. of short time periods, but you might have one word for in five days, one word for in two weeks, and one word for in a month. I don't know. They're just ideas. I don't know. We'd have to figure that out, but, uh, I, I think we'd have to look at research to figure out whether that actually happens anywhere. Well, like, but, I know um, in, in, um, like, uh, uh, William, in in native North American languages, is there um, the remote past and the and the very far past? I know some languages had that, but I don't know which. Uh, you never know. Some languages may have no time, no tense marking at all. Others may mm-hmm. have three or four distinguishing, three or four different pasts oh, into okay. different times. You just never know. You never oh, know. Yeah, I thought that was. I, I mean, think this, honestly, this... I think honestly that really the uh, the 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 geographical and the cultural realities don't really 
affect the grammar mu- that much. The only exception that I have heard of is the more isolated a culture is, the more morphologically complex the language is, which I know most of our listeners will already know this because it's something that people in the forums will pounce on immediately. But, you know, that's an important thing. The the cavemen that have the really simple language of grunts is a ridiculous trope because it's actually totally the opposite. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this is, you know, maybe we can get Dan Everett to come on. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah. Uh-huh. He, he, he did a review of um, Erica Okren's, um book when it came out a few years ago, which is uh, frankly a little bit condescending to Conlanger. So I don't think he'd come on, but his argument is that culture does in fact change language down to the level of grammar mm. or can. Does it? Okay. It does. Mm. Huh. Or can. Anyway. So anything else you want to cover? We we've gotten sort of far afield here. Um Yeah, we've well, gotten a really far and we've talked about a little bit about a lot of things that we could do whole episodes on. I think we yep. could do a whole episode on loan words, honestly. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> um but I think we need to actually move on because this has gone we this discussion has gone pretty long. Mm. Why, why don't we go ahead and talk about our featured conlang today, which is Ingame. <laughs> I like Ingame. saying that. It sorry is. For, sorry for butchering that. And, uh, so Ingame is a, is one of the Akana languages. It belongs to the Western language family and spoken negative 2000 YP on the Palash step. That stuff makes sense in Akana, but uh, basically it's very... um. So looking at it, all right, s- sort of starting with phonology, it has voiceless nasals. That's interesting. I-, I just wanted to mention, we picked this language. We did another Akana language in the past, but uh-huh. since the whole Akana project is about precisely this, Con worlding, mm-hmm. it seems useful to grab yeah. this one. Although we're just going to talk about the language, it's not obvious that there's a huge amount of um, some of these topics. Maybe are here, but unfortunately, I wait. I couldn't really find much about how it fits into the world, other yeah. than the fact that he has uh, basically his historical sound changes from Proto yeah. Western, the Grandmaster Plan. Um, mm. Yes, and. Uh, those are kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So, um, so is Proto Western like a like a the mother language from which these other uh, Akana languages developed? Some of them. Well, there's yes. several. There's there's several different Proto languages in Akana, mm-hmm. and basically, they the people have just sort of um, made languages from those. So mm-hmm. there's several different language families now. And mm-hmm. it's, it's actually extremely diverse because basically the whole point of it is you, you join the Akana project and you make a language. So right. it's, you know, and, and they're, they're focusing on this rather small part of their world. So that part of their world has like hundreds of languages already. Mm. But that's not completely 
irrational. That could it's happen. Not, it's not unusual. It's not. It's not that unusual. At least, I don't know much about the the technology level that they've gotten up to with Akana. So, mm. it's probably fairly realistic to have that many languages. It's just kind mm-hmm. of interesting that they they decided to go that far. Mm. It's kind of interesting how how it developed that way. Mm. Mm. One nice thing about all of these is they have set texts that all of them tend to translate. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Which lets you first do comparative work to see what they've done. I sometimes get the impression that Akana people have an agenda mm. and they take the proto-language, they say, I'm going to make Swahili. <laughs> or, or you know, something else. And, and then they say, what will we need to do to make this happen? I don't know. I noticed this language has lots of evidentials. Yeah, I was just looking at that. With weird um, boundaries. Yeah, like the the call evidential, internal and visual. And it It's both knowledge gathered visually and one's own thoughts and emotions. That's an interesting mix well, there. That one's easiest for me. Number two, which is oral and nasal, knowledge gathered by <laughs> taste or smell. The example sentence, of course, is charming. I smell that you farted, which is just lovely. Mm. Um, three, touch and hear. Um, that's, that, that does seem odd. That's a very odd. You'd think hear would have its own. Well, I would think here would almost be with, with vision because I mean, I, I mean, and I guess maybe this is just the way I'm thinking about the breakup, but in terms of proximity that you need to have for this uh, perception to occur, touch would be uh, like you, you're literally right against them, maybe the same as taste. And then I guess if, and of course this is not my baby, so I, you know, one of the props to the creator of this, but, um, you know, and then hearing and sight for, in my mind, is something you can perceive from far away, but maybe they broke it up in some totally different, um, internal way. So, yeah. W- well, just, I think. Go ahead. Well, I think, uh, direct evidentials, correct me if I'm wrong, William. Usually, if there is any differentiation, usually hearing, vision, and then hearing are the first things to be dif- differentiated because they're the most important senses to human beings. That's exactly right. If, mm-hmm. if you're going to distinguish modes of sense, Mm-hmm. In an evidential system, sight will separate from the rest first, with mm-hmm. hearing a very rare but existing possibility. Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of a single language that has a touch evidential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, there is um, a smell one. There, well, right, we had... But yes. it's rare. The, 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 the uh, differentiating different senses is fairly rare in the first place. I mean, it's it's right? interesting, and is it are the are the speakers of this human? Yes. Okay. Yeah, probably. I think I, mean, I think um I think that that Akane is all humans. If there were a society that that perhaps had uh, they were you know had better sense of smell or like uh if they had similar to you know could perceive pheromones or some sort of uh, like transmit messages by smell or olfactory means, I would expect mm-hmm. to see that a lot too. Sure, and one of the first languages you guys did, George, was one for... Oh, the very first. The wolf one, yeah. The very first were... I think they were sort of... They they were sort of like werewolves, but I don't think they were called werewolves for uh, Feyran. Yeah, I remember that. They had... Smell was important in their language, and that guy's actually recently done... uh, Talked about, I guess, a specific dialect called Running Waters, and he went into... Where they actually had 
noun classes based on smell. So, hmm. uh, so that's that gets into a sort of an alien languages. But back to Ingamu. Hmm. Um, yeah, these these guys I'm sure are human, but they just have some some fairly rare um evidentials, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with having rare um. I like. They also have a speculative slash fictional evidential. That's almost like an irrealistic, I would guess. Like a, and it's so. zero marked. Again, tremendously, tremendously typologically weird. Yeah, but that's okay. Uh, yeah, you you expect the direct to be zero marked, right? Right. Um. Uh. They have how many noun classes? Like seven of them. Eight. Huh. Wait. No. 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 Eight. Eight. Seven. Seven. Yeah. Seven. Seven. And then the eight is no no ending. Oh, and, and by the way, all nouns inflect not just for case, absolutive versus ergative, but also for edibility in the absolutive. Yeah. But, but um, only, but only in the singular. And mm. the absolutive is that distinction apparent. Yes, but see, the edibility has some odd, um, some rather odd things because you can make land edible and it just make means er, arable land it sounds almost like a radical in terms of like in chinese where you switch the radical out and like if you have um you know horse sound side with with, you change it to a like a a stone radical it has something to do with stone about it so maybe it's i mean of course this radical radical is written i don't think it, it changes I don't think it's that much because that's that's a feature of the writing system, and it's more that's getting yeah, that's, a, a mnemonic to for you to figure out what the character means. Well, um, that's what I was just in saying. In this case, it's much more organic. Like the horse in Edible and Edible, I can see that being transparent. Particularly, these people are called the horse people. So a little bit about how the con world affects the and how the culture affects the language. Uh, if they are. Uh, primarily a horse culture. They probably eat horses as well as ride them, so it might make sense to them to describe them as edible or inedible. But the land is a little bit more of a stretch because you have to think of, okay, well, edible land means that you can grow crops on it. Unless they, do they refer to, do they refer to crops as part of the land? Because if it's like, you know, the land's arm, then maybe that's the end. Uh, all it says here is that Leo, which is the Leo, which is the um, the edible form of land, means cultivable land. So I don't think it means it's they're associating with it with the crops, but just the fact that you can grow crops on it, they just consider that edible. And you know, and, it might uh, not be it might not be direct like um, literal because, like in Spanish, you know, manzana is apple. But an ap- masculine apple, manzano, is not. It's it's the apple tree. It's not really driven by uh, anything like in well, terms of. Yeah, that's the point. It's not. It's not a hundred percent literal. What what we're what I'm saying. He actually. Ex- let me read the. Uh, the edibility category is productive, but can be idiosyncratic. Prototypically, mm-hmm. it indicates an edible referent. Mm-hmm. But sometimes indicates a referent merely associated with food, yeah. e.g., le land, leo cultivable land. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's all the information he gives us. So basically, what he's saying is, it can mean that it's edible or inedible, mm-hmm. or it can just mean 
that it's that it's a slightly different lexical meaning that's more associated with food. I really wish we could have got this. We had some scheduling problems, so we couldn't get this guy on the show. I wish we could have had him on the show to explain this to us. But uh, I think it's there's the base meaning, and then there's figurative extensions to it. How much work has been put in? Uh, how long has this language been around? Like, is it in a lot of use, or uh, was it mainly used? I think and he, then- he's. He in his emails he said he just basically just produced this sketch that we have, mm. and well, he calls it a sketch. It's it's nearly a full grammar, so yeah, it's quite pretty uh, detailed. Um, for yeah. me, the interesting thing about the nominal morphology is, I mean, the edibility thing is kind of funky. It just mm-hmm. it just satisfies me that the inedible edible distinction is only made in the absolutive. An ergative, yeah. an ergative is prototypically an agent. You wouldn't expect that to be edible. True. That that does make sense. You would you would or edibility doesn't really make any sense in the ergative. ergative I mean, you can you can because you can certainly come something. up with right. You can come up with sentences where it would make sense, but sort of prototypically, it makes less sense. So that made me happy. And there are yeah, the whole paradigm is a bit irregular. For example, those nouns that have monosyllabic ergative forms make no overt distinction between the different absolutives because that's just how the morphology works. Right. Mm-hmm. Huh. And his example is low, meaning men, which I very much hope that, well, I won't say that because they're all <laughs> are cannibalistic for uh, reasons that aren't evil. Mm-hmm. Um Right. Um, seven noun classes, which is, again, a typical of the languages derived from, is it Proto-Western that they're calling it? Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting, the, and there's interesting, of course, class one is humans and other pe- beings capable of speech. So it's humans, but it could also be animals and fables or gods or spirits or whatever. And hmm. then the, the edibility thing figures into the classes a little bit mm-hmm. because you have sol- one class two is solid ed- inedible objects or mushy edible objects yeah. which is <laughs> interesting semantic range and there's also sort of stuff like liquids fire or wind uh now, intangible things now here's a question could you change the class for poetic purposes or would you just like uh if you're talking about the winds talking to you, would you use the first class for that, or would you use its normal class? And I just- suspect because he says animals in fables that you can do that. The idea so that like you could change the class of an animal just because it happens to speak in the story. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then if you had like speak talking fruit, like like VeggieTales, would that become I guess class one? I would guess <laughs> probably. Uh, I mean, it's important to note that nouns themselves do not take overt class marking. Mm-hmm. Only the only the agreement agreement mechanics do the classes show up. So it's pretty easy. Which to, makes the poetic work use even more interesting because it's kind of odd to. This makes this makes these this class system more like the languages of the Caucasus than like say the Bantu languages. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, Bantu language is what you have the same prefix on everything, right? It, the shape might not necessarily be the same, but they're almost everything has some sort of prefix. Yeah. Um, 
As a consequence of these multiple kinds of classes, they effectively act like um, what most of us are used to thinking about in genders. So you have a large number of pronouns. You have a large table of demonstratives. Um, uh-huh. Well, the, the demonstratives the, immediately look fairly regular, I think. Yeah, but mostly. I mean, there's there's some weaknesses yeah. there. Now, here's um, a question. Oh, sorry. And then I was just going to say also the verb morphology. Morphology? Morphology. Um, I said morphology because of the, the, the long object class system. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. We were uh, mentioning before the show long, uh, for long, uh, hard objects, he adds, has penis in as an example of, of one of those things that could be in class five. In case you couldn't guess that. Um, the conjugation of a transitive verb has a big chart. Mm hmm. Um, because you have to account for subject and Ooh. object class. Yeah, I found it. <laughs> I mean, not every possibility is indicated, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's quite the chart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, then, and there's some, some, uh, interesting, it's not straight up regular. There's some that share a form and such. Right. Um, one thing to, that, well, two things I want to mention. One of them, I thought it was interesting that they had the uh, inalienable possession markers, the uh, basically prefixed forms of the like first person possessive, uh, then second and second third on two dot one dot two. Right. That was that was kind of nice. Well, um, he he makes the point that what was an inalienable distinction in Proto Western has been generalized in this language to all of them. Uh, to so all he doesn't for. Okay. Yeah. Um. Hmm. And then um, that was the one thing. And the other thing I was going to mention while I was looking at this is um, the the name of this language, Ingemer, is that one of those endonyms or is that an exonym? Where did that come from? Do we know? Uh, Ingemer, I think, is an exonym. It sure looks like it. It says the name uh, on the Akana wiki page, which is, uh, which is a stub. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it says the name the speakers give to their cultural group was Sahnilupul. Singular. Sahnilub. Sahnilub. Yeah. Meaning horse people. So, although this term could be, could also be That's, applied to any nomadic group. So, yeah, I was, um, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't know where Ingamu, the, the language name comes from. Well, I actually looking at it now, it says our tongue is right after that. And I, when I was looking at the possession, oh, okay. I noticed so it that is, Ingo, it is, Ingo was a plural first person, uh, possessor, like Ingo Jean. Is uh, our fingernail, and in a mirror, mirror must be tongue. So um, that's probably where they got it, or language, or something. Okay, then it, it must be an, an endonym. Then hmm. that's interesting. Okay. I, like I mean, it matches it matches the the phonology of itself. That's another yeah. important thing that I forgot to mention when I asked what's the name. Is the name of your language at all related to the name of the people who speak it? Because it doesn't have to be. Huh. Um, oh, I see. It actually, um, merci means tongue or language. So when you're looking at the lexicon down below, M R S I with an accent over the I is means tongue or language. So I suppose that S the C became lost somewhere when you're talking about Ingemir, um, oh. because mer by itself means by means of. So. By the way, speaking of the lexicon, um, I was looking through it and, um, oh, that's a palatal stop. Okay. Um, and I found one word. So, 
Uh, I didn't really find many words that had interesting semantic ranges, but I found one, uh, Sigulga, float downstream, be crazy, get carried away. Hmm. Sigulga. But now it's an intransitive verb, though. So that just seems interesting that you say he's floating downstream to, to, to mean he's crazy. Now, I'm curious, if you were talking about to get carried away by something, like you, something made you that entranced, I wonder if that would be like a prepositional phrase or if that would be uh, one of those. Is there a case in this? No. I mean, yeah, we have, well, this is we a, have, the, sigugya is a, is a verb. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but what the, what would the, um, be taken away by something? That, 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 um, I don't know what the theta Well, I, I don't know. He, his, but. his dictionary is not that detailed, so I, I have no idea. If no. there's any anything that has to go with that, I have a question about cases. Um, and maybe William, you might know this, and maybe George, you might. Um, I know in um, most languages I've studied have been nominative accusative languages. I've not had virtually any experience with uh, ergative absolutive. But um, do the are the other cases that are in nominative accusative languages in ergative absolutive languages like a, like a sure. dative? Uh, ju- yeah, yeah. they yeah, can. Yeah. They can. It can be. It's, Depends on the language. Mm, okay. Yeah, it's it's it, the the uh, nominative accusative or ergative absolutive alignment, mm-hmm. or the the more crazy fluid S systems and such. Ugh, that's a, that specifically um, is talking about the use of two or three different cases for AS and O. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yes. Yeah, th- the those those three. The, those three core roles and what cases are assigned to them. Mm. But it could have, it could have other cases or not. It just depends on the language. I don't see any evidence of other cases in this particular language. They said that it's very agglutinative, um, but I don't know if that's leans towards casing or not. Doesn't have to. Yeah. Uh, I think this one just has just absolutive and ergative cases. No, like. I think that's right. Yeah, when he talks about yeah, uh, so. yeah, that's when he talks about the scum, and then the rest is probably handled by some sort of ad position or, or something. <laughs> yeah, AB, that's well. This okay. Well, look, looking at um an an, an example right just before three dot one dot three, um, mm-hmm. it mentions the recipient of a ditransitive clause it comes between the verb and the agent, and it appears in the absolutive case. So the hunter gave the skin to his wife. Um, skin mm-hmm. is an absolutive, and then the verb give, and then wife is an absolutive, and then hunter is an ergative. So that's um, hmm. yeah. And then I walk not, through the forest. Our prepositional case. Yeah. And, well, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Not all languages um, mm-hmm. choose to distinguish indirect from direct objects. Mm. They may just be objects, or they do other things with how the verb works, so that the issue never comes up. What does e dash one mean on that? Uh, I walked in the forest part. Is that uh? Do you guys do you know? I maybe I didn't see the explanation. E one dash one. E one is evidentiality. One is first person. Okay, because I see What's, the forest okay. is ergative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Um. What's funny to me? First uh-huh. of all, possessors mm-hmm. in this language are in the ergative, which is really interesting. Um. And that's one of those things where it's not unusual for languages that are ergative absolutive or that have some element of that in them for some other case role to look identical to the ergative. 
Okay. If this is descended from a language where the possessive and the ergative look alike, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. What's surprising to me is that a transitive verb is obligatorily marked for both subject and object, hmm. or rather ergative and absolutive. Mm-hmm. And yet they must also be both overt in the clause. Hmm. So, I mean, the subject pronoun I is always used in these sentences as examples. Mm-hmm. Even so it's not though pro drop. It is definitely not pro drop. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know how many languages are like that that have such marking on the verb. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I was in terms of just that uh, the marking, like the I walked in the forest. It was I'm like I said I don't have much experience with the ergative, and you said that sometimes they look other cases will look like the ergative. So I walked in the forest to have forest as ergative. That is odd for me because I always figured ergative was for like um, yeah I need the brush job on that. It's in an ergative absolutive language, the A is treated differently from the S and the O, right? Correct. And yes. the A is the agent, and that's, that takes ergative. the abs- absolutive ra- no, uh, that's role? the ergative. Ergative. Okay. Ergative. And yeah, then, and then okay. the others take the absolutive. Um, I suggest that you do some research on it and make, you just, just make a toy language that's, follows ergative absolutive yeah i tried that because actually, if but you it got... figure out how to make it work yeah. then you understand it much better well i mean i did do that for a bit and then it just i didn't know um i hadn't i guess i hadn't toyed around with actual not lines with the other cases because when i got to talking about um like dative how does that figure in and and how does um the other cases People people often give uh, Basque as a good example of a purely ergative language, although Basque mm-hmm. has a lot of other oddities in it, too. It's kind um, of hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, what else? Did, um, I wanted to mention the numerals. This language has base eight numerals. Is that yep. octal? Yep. Yes, which is extremely rare. And... Uh, what is that? Uh, not V. That's base eight as well. Okay. <laughs> I bet that uh, gives you problems, doesn't it? Will. Um, no, I'm a Unix language... guy. I'm used to dealing with base eight all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and also um, uh, the word for six has been a replaced with a compound of five one. Yay! So <laughs> yeah, I love that. And he actually gives a justification that, uh, the, uh, the sound changes would have made it t- sound too similar to four. So mm. apparently that was a strategy to avoid that happening. So, mm. um, and other than that, it seems like the cardinal numbers like affix onto the noun, whereas the ordinals just have, uh, um, have a, uh, a, a Z at the end. Well, this is uh, modifiers in the language tend to prefix anyway, so okay, so no. that makes sense. The dashes, like I think I see in um, underneath where it says multiples of eight are formed by muso and then a dash eight, preceded by the ordinal uh, indicating how many times it's multiplied. So when you see underneath it says it says sees muso dash colon, um, is that dash part of the orthography or is it being broken up in there? Do you know? He's breaking that up, I think. Okay. Yeah, he's just breaking up compounds, that's all. Mm. Um, <laughs> eight. Oh, okay, so like eight fourth eight. Okay. I see. That's an interesting way to, uh, form the, uh, 
the the second step in in numbers there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't have much else. It, he has an anti-passive voice, but I didn't really I get that. into figuring out how how much how that works really. Um, he has a nice mix of valency trickery. Some things are just changing the conjugation. Others are affixes of various sorts. Mm-hmm. So we recently uh, talked about negation and scope of negation. So he's got the negative particle is a. Its most neutral position is after the verb, but when a particular noun phrase is to be negated, the negative particle follows it. So, yay! Uh-huh. I like the, uh, yeah, and he ha- also has questions being marked by a, a speculative evidential, and also has a particle. Um, I like the demonstratives where there's near me, near you, and then distant. Like uh, I like that three three tier three way. The three you like the three way yeah, distinction. He has, I, I he has do, a like, bunch of different examples. <laughs> Mm-hmm. He has a bunch of different examples for his questions to tell, ask you how to, to ask a whole bunch of different things. And it's interesting because it looks like his question word sentence, sentences mostly who, what, and which I think have a pronoun, but the others don't have actual WH words. They use other, other things. Now, speaking of pronouns, um, I see on there there's anaphoric and cataphoric for new, old, old information, new information. Is that um what kind of languages is that in in that lines? Do you guys know of any? I'm not sure of any. Hmm. Um, cataphoric. Cataphor- it might be cataphoric. I don't know. Yeah, cataphoric. No, I think it's, I'm trying to think of a noun for that. Anyway, um, I'm used to that primarily as a sub function of existing demonstratives. Ooh, it comes from a Greek word, cataphora. Cataphora. Cataphora, I'm not sure. Yeah, cataphora, I think. Um, And that just means when you're referring to something that's not been mentioned yet, but is about to be. Mm. Okay. But it was just interesting. I want to say, I don't know, does anyone have anything else they want to say? There's a lot, actually, to this language, despite... It's interesting. The the author saying it's a, a, a sketch. And I think... People really should follow our link and look at it themselves because it's, it's very interesting. Follow the, the, the link to the grammar because there's a lot of interesting, there's a lot of thought put into this language and there's a lot of interesting stuff that, that happens that is fairly naturalistic. And although there's a lot of odd things that I let, we mentioned like lots of evidentials and base eight numerals. Which I wonder if that does that come from Proto Western? I think so. Okay. That might no. be okay. Mm-hmm. Um one thing I see like in the Grandmaster plan, if there's people who aren't familiar with the terms for the um means of articulation or sa- the sound change notation, that might be a little daunting. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But yeah. that's that's fine. Um that is that is a little uh difficult to look at the the sound changes, but uh Brzezanik had that too, is that it was, it was sort of the mathematical style of sound change notation. But, but it was nice to um, see where they all come from. Yeah. Yeah. You can see, you can, um, oh, initial aspiration. Interesting. Um, so other than that, is, is there anything else to say about Ingemar? I actually just now found an interesting, uh, feedback for us, but, uh, yeah, no, I think it's good. It's worth looking at. Yeah. Um, especially yeah. if you want to try polypersonal agreement, 
in a somewhat naturalistic but not perfectly regular way. Mm-hmm. This is a this yes. is a somewhat a somewhat more approachable um, demonstration of that than others you might find. So that's good. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, let's go to our feedback, and this feedback it's signed Gildoff. So I'll say this is from Gildoff. He said the Damon or Damien language uh, was created by the Lardil as a form of ritual language, which seems to be classified as a conlang. But it was developed by an entire culture over several several generations, and not by a single person. So doesn't that classify as a natlang? But on the other hand, the vac- vocabulary is actually very small, with only two pronouns. Also, the phonology of Lardil and the neighboring Yangka languages don't really match the phonology of De... How do I pronounce this? I'm trying to find the Wikipedia page. Um, Damin. Uh, for example, Damin has a fricative. Not just any fricative, but an ingressive, voiceless, lateral, alveolar fricative. Uh, how, how would you say that? Uh, anyway. Um, there are also clicks present in most places of articulation with a special mention to the prenasal bilabial click contrasting with oral aggressive, the oral aggressive bilabial click. Keep in mind that, keeping in mind that this is spoken in Australia, so not a place where you find clicks. Right. That's, that, uh, I, I was going to mention that. I was just going to say, I was going to mention that earlier. The only place apart from Southern Africa and parts of sort of a little bit further north into the West where clicks occur is in this invented language of the Lord. <laughs> um, any ideas on what's happening there, guys? Also, at the top of the show, I thought Mike had replaced George. Then I realized that I was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't... Part of the problem with Damien is that the ritual context and the religious context that caused it to be used is mostly gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so the number of people who even still speak it is very small. Mm-hmm. Um, and since we don't expect, I don't think, the sub-incision ceremony to come back, I don't know if we have enough data to say everything we might like to say about the language. Um, the sub-incision? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I see that. Do not <laughs> Google that from work. <laughs> and do not Google it at all if you are made queasy easily by body modification. Ooh, most definitely. I just okay. clicked it and ooh. Uh, yeah, okay. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so only people who'd gone through particular religious rites um, use the language Officially, though, lots of people could recognize it and understand it. Apparently, the mode of instruction involved the initiates just having words shouted at them, which they repeated back. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. It it is interesting that this is one of those really interesting case of um, language and religion interacting in an interesting way. I would be inclined to count it as a constructed language, even though it has developed over time for several generations. The same thing can be said about Esperanto. That does not make it a natural Mm. language. It just doesn't have a single author that we know of. Right. Although, you know, it could have been one guy that started it. One of the few successful collaborative conlangs in existence. Hmm. (laughs) 
How rare is that? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty darn rare. I don't think conlangers don't play well together. We all have these yeah. little features we like, and we get crabby when we don't the, get them. The, 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 yeah, there's oh, penile sub-incision. Yeah, I'm not going to Google that yet. <laughs> don't, um, yeah, don't. don't. I warned you. We warned well, don't you. Don't wander around on there. You'll just get scar- scarred. Uh. <laughs> I okay. wandered down the um, long rabbit hole. So um, All right. So, in general, we're going to say this is... Now, we know that this was constructed, though, right? Yeah, it's pretty obvious that this is not... It, it, like he said, it has a phonology quite bizarre compared to mm-hmm. the surrounding languages. The manner of instruction, the number of people who are speaking it and how they are speaking it, it makes it pretty clear that this was invented. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Well... I think intended, we'll for, say, intended for intended for use in particular circumstances and as sort of a, a social bonding for people who'd been through mm-hmm. who were initiates. Okay, so Gildoff and we're gonna say basically as far as we can figure it, it's it's a constructed language, even though it has that odd sense because it was deliberately constructed, whereas natural languages evolved naturally from something previous. I'm uh, gonna I'm, say except then... for Basque. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I, it's hard for me to get excited about making the distinction. I think there's obviously an art, mm, a high degree of artifice involved in this language. Mm-hmm. But if we want it, is it a calling? Is it that thing? This is another one of those cases where I'm not sure. Um, much is accomplished by deciding. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I think that wraps up our show for us. Uh, William, do you have any final words of wisdom? I am wisdomless this week. Mike? Um, no, I think we covered a lot and a lot of different topics and just, you know, same as always, just don't be afraid to go out and try something new and learn more and, and conline happily. All right, and I am going to say happy conlanging. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Wow, that was long and meandering. That was, that was but you know, this this topic wasn't necessarily like like nailed to the wall in the first place. It had a very broad um, umbrella of what could it could have covered, and I think we we wandered around quite happily on that plains of Con World. Ours is there another conlanging forum? So mere particles. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>